This is a HeadGum Podcast. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you so much for joining me on the show again. You know, if you're like most Americans, you probably spent some time in a vehicle on the road today. You drove or maybe you got a ride to work, school, or just about any other imaginable place. Roads are pretty much the most basic physical infrastructure that connects our society together. We even use roads as a measure of societal success and accomplishment. Whether we're talking about Eisenhower's Interstate Highway Project back in the 50s or the glory of ancient Rome. For our world to work, we need roads, a lot of them. America itself has over 4 million miles of roads, and the vast majority of them were all built in the last century. And the world combined has 10 times that. We expect roads to be near to us, to be close at hand, to be in good condition, and if you live anywhere near a city, to be plentiful as hell. Because roads are so essential, though, we don't think much about their impact. It's easy to imagine roads as something that exists on top of the world, right? Something somehow separate from it. But that is absolutely not the case. Roads cut right through habitats, geographies, cities, and ecosystems. What for us is a convenience and a God-given right is for a mountain lion or a deer, an obstruction, a wasteland, or a potential death sentence. For animals, the ones that are still left on this planet, roads are a drastic and dangerous transformation of the world around them. And we now know that roads have a massively negative environmental impact. We think of roads as connecting, but we don't think enough about what they cut off, not just for animals, but for human society as well. So just what is the impact of roads on our planet and on our lives as humans? And is there anything we can do about it? Well, to answer that question, we have an amazing guest today. But before we get to him, I want to remind you that if you want to support this show, you can do so on Patreon. Just head to patreon.com slash Adam Conover. Five bucks a month gets you every episode of this podcast ad-free and a bunch of other awesome perks as well. And if you want to come see me on tour as a stand-up comedian, head to adamconover.net. I'd love to see you at an upcoming stand-up show. I'm touring all around the country. New dates added all the time. Now, this week on the show, we have an incredible guest. His name is Ben Goldfarb, and he's the author of a new book called Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. Please welcome Ben Goldfarb. Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so you have a book. The thesis of the book is that roads, the very thing I used to get to the studio today, are bad. What the fuck and why? Yeah, you know, driving ruins everything. That could be the the, sub, <laughs> the subtitle of the of the book. You know, roads we think of as being these sort of symbols of freedom and connectivity. You know, we all love going on road trips and uh, you know getting places in our car. Roads are so useful, right? But you know, the thesis of the book is basically that for all of the 
non-human animals out there, the deer and the raccoons and the opossums and everything that's basically not us. You know, roads are this ecological debacle uh, on, a, on a, a truly massive scale. And how so? Why, why is that? I mean, it's just like a little strip of asphalt. What's the big deal? Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly like the, the most conspicuous manifestation of how roads screw up nature is roadkill, right? We've all seen the dead critter lying by the side of the highway. I, mean, I think that we kind of tend to dismiss roadkill as being a, a real biological crisis. But, you know, more than a million animals are killed in the U.S. every day by cars. And you know, roads are an existential threat to all kinds of critters like the Florida panther and the tiger salamander, right? So, you know, roadkill, this incredibly mundane phenomenon that we all drive by, uh, you know, a million times a day without thinking about it is really one of the, the great ecological catastrophes on our, on our planet. It's one of the causes of the, the sixth extinction event that we're all living through right now. I mean, I wouldn't have imagined the numbers would be that large, right, uh, w- of roadkill. But I, mean, I suppose it makes sense. I mean, you've got this strip in what was previously in many areas a forest where suddenly there's incredibly large metal objects moving through at a very high rate of speed. It's, it's uh, very dangerous and it's not something that, you know, animals, I guess, evolved to be aware of, right? Well, right. That's, I mean, that's exactly the problem, you know, is the way that cars kind of hijack evolutionary history. You know, you think about all of the, you know, the common critters that we have in North America, you know, the porcupines, which have quills and skunks, which spray and, you know, opossums that play possum and, and uh, you know, and snakes that, uh, you know, use their venom defensively, right? It's like, these are all these good kind of stand your ground strategies that work really well against a coyote or a hawk or some mm. natural predator. But, you know, when you've got, you know, a, a, an F-150 barreling down I-70 at 80 miles an hour, you know, the worst thing you can possibly do is stand your ground, right? So all of this, I mean, the cars basically take evolution and, and render it maladaptive. I think that's one of the really kind of horrific and tragic things wow. about, uh, about cars. And cars have not been around that long, less than 100 years have we been driving at that rate of speed. And so there hasn't been time for evolution to evolve anything to compensate for that. Like, I'm kind of of having fun imagining what an evolutionary adaptation to traffic would be. Like, I don't know, maybe you could uh, inflate or... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or, um, or, or I don't know, move, move across the road very quickly, I suppose. Yeah, or, jump uh, really far or something, yeah. Yeah, or maybe maybe resemble a car coming in the opposite direction to cause the driver to swerve, <laughs> right? If you could, like, have two headlights pop out and a sort of, uh, whatever, mimicry uh, move. Uh, yeah. But that would I've take tra- a couple million that. years. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, although, there, you know, there actually, there actually is, there, there is one really cool study about road driven evolution there's there's this fantastic paper about uh swallows cliff swallows that build those little mud nests on the undersides of highway bridges and overpasses swallows flying around and basically what researchers found is that you know over the course of just a few decades so really like the geologic blink of an eye uh you know cliff swallows have actually evolved to get shorter wings and the reason for that is that if you have long wings that's good for flying long directions and straight lines. But if you have short wings, 
That's good for making lots of tight turns and rolls. It's good for that maneuverability that you'd use to get out of the way of an 18 wheeler, you know, barreling down the highway. So as a result, all of the long wing swallows are getting weeded out of the population by vehicles and the short wing swallows are being selectively favored. Um, So evolution is actually happening really rapidly because of our roads, which is which is uh, pretty, pretty amazing to think about. Okay, that's a very quick evolutionary adaptation. But uh, I mean, most animals are not going to have that opportunity. It normally takes, you know, thousands or millions of years to evolve something as complex as as venom or or, you know, a startle, you know, stand your ground response, right? Totally. Yeah. I mean, the, the cliff swallows are definitely the the exception, not the norm. And, you know, most most animals just are not able to cope with, uh, you know, with uh, with vehicles, which is, you know, a huge part of why they're so they're so destructive. Definitely. OK, but look, I, I think if you're coming on here to say, hey, roadkill is bad, people will say, yes, I agree. But come on, like, you know, roads are it's a small strip, right? Um, there are still many, many, you know, millions of acres of wild places here in America, especially if you go to, I don't know, states like Montana or, or, uh, you know, even many parts of California, you know, you, you know, I, I, I fly a lot. You look down, you see one little road going all the way across the desert with miles and miles of desert on either side. Right. And so how, how bad could this problem really be on a large scale? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great point. I mean, I think that what, you know, one of the things that people fail to realize that you certainly don't notice when you're just looking down at a road from above is, you know, roads, despite being these little slender asphalt ribbons, are actually huge forms of habitat loss, right? You can see, you know, you could imagine a herd of migrating elk or antelope, you know, these animals that have to move across large landscapes uh, to find food and water and shelter and all the stuff they need, just like people, right? Uh, and when they hit, you know, an interstate like I-70 or I-80 or I-90, you know, there's this kind of constant stream of traffic driving along, you know, this kind of this phenomenon that some biologists have called the moving fence, just this impenetrable wall of traffic. And animals are reluctant to try to break through that wall, right? Nobody wants to, you know, dart across, uh, you know, a 200 foot wide interstate highway that's, you know, that's uh, trafficked by 20,000 cars a day, right? So when animals fail to even attempt to cross the highway, they're losing access to all of that habitat that they need Mm. to survive. So they're actually- It's a wall. It's a wall, exactly. It's a wall of vehicles. And, you know, there are some really horrific stories uh, of, you know, after the interstate highways were built of these, these big herds of deer and elk and other migrating animals that actually starve en masse because they have to kind of keep going to get to their, you know, low elevation winter pasture where they can find food, you know, in the, the snowy months. But they hit that wall of traffic and they, and they don't try to cross and they just end up dying uh, as, a, as a result. So the, so the road's not killing them directly, right? It's the habitat loss that's caused by the road. That's the, the big problem. Right. If you take a large habitat, a large plains that uh, a group of animals might use and you just put one road across the middle, you've taken away half of the habitat for those animals if they're if they're stuck on land. If they're if that's the only way to move across because you've divided it into two. And also, you mentioned the sixth extinction. I read Elizabeth Colbert's book a number of years ago, incredible book. And she talks about how humans doing that to animal habitats, subdividing them or connecting habitats that didn't exist, that weren't connected before, like is just generally numerically reduces biodiversity on a massive scale. Is there an impact here as well? 
Oh, I mean, a, a huge one. Yeah. You know, I, th- I think that 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 fragmentation of habitats, you know, which roads really inflict is is one of the huge contributors to that. This you know massive extinction event that we're we're living through. Right. And it's not just those migrating animals. You know, you can imagine, you know, a big a big critter like a, a mountain lion or a grizzly bear. Right. These are these are big animals that need lots of prey and they, you know, they patrol huge territories and they have to wander these enormous swaths of intact habitat, right? So if, you know, if you get a bunch of highways that fragment that habitat and prevent them from, you know, seamlessly moving across the landscape, I mean, that's, that's potentially fatal to them. Uh, you know, there, there are some horrific cases of, you know, populations of mountain lions, for example, that have become inbred because, you know, no new mountain lions can enter the population and, you know, none of the mountain lions in the population can leave because they're surrounded. They're on these little islands of habitat surrounded by oceans of freeways and they have to end up mating with their own daughters and granddaughters and great granddaughters. So the population gets super inbred and declines over, over time. So yeah, no question that, you know, that roads are, even when they're not killing animals directly in the form of roadkill, right, they're still preventing critters from getting to the places they need to go and, and, you know, curtailing their lives as a result. And it's so striking that what for us is a form of connection and convenience, right? It, it allows, for instance, for an isolated population of humans, a road might allow more uh, diversity, right? It might allow people to come in and go, might allow that date who you've never met before that, that, that uh, sex partner who is not from your town and came from the big city could bring a little bit of, you know, a new, uh, uh, you know, to your, uh, a little bit of a spice to your footloose town, right? That's what a road represents to humans, to animals. It represents like it, it can create separation and isolation and deprivation. You mentioned mountain lions. There's a, a really great example of that here in LA where I live. Um, famously, I'm sure you know this story. There's a mountain lion named P 22, who uh, crossed multiple freeways uh, to cross the Santa Monica, you know, the the normal range of these mountain lines would be the Santa Monica mountains, which are now subdivided by freeways. This one mountain line crossed multiple freeways to enter Griffith Park, which is the the biggest urban park in LA. It's a big mountainside and lived there for, I believe over a decade, just eating like, I don't know, rats and bunnies and (laughs) and things like that, but became sort of a... um, uh, a symbol of the city, very beloved resident. People would be very excited when they saw P22, except that it was fundamentally sad because he had no mate. He had no uh, ability to sort of have a full mountain lion life. He was essentially like almost rendered into a zoo animal um, uh, and and eventually uh, died when he was uh, hit by a car and, uh, uh, you know, was injured. And, and I'm sorry to end the story on a down note, but it was just <laughs> such a it, it was like um, it, it was a very traumatic event for the city when this happened because he was so beloved. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's real what you're talking about. Yeah, totally. I, you know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned P22 because he is, you know, kind of the ultimate symbol or, or avatar of the, uh, you know, the, the, the problems that roads create. And, you know, I think that one of the great things about him, too, is that he's also part of the solution, right, that, that he raised so much awareness about the plight of these mountain lines that you're describing that, you know, now California is in the process of building this gigantic wildlife overpass over the 101 that will allow mm. those little inbred, that little inbred cluster of Santa Monica mountain lions to disperse out and will allow new lions from elsewhere in California to disperse into that little island of habitat. It'll encourage that kind of genetic interchange that that Santa Monica population needs to survive in the long term. Uh, and, you know, certainly that, that 
incredible bridge that's being built right now wouldn't have happened without P22 galvanizing the city and raising awareness about uh, you know the, the fate of these these animals. So P22, you know, he definitely suffered a an awful end, but he kind of died a martyr. You know, Adam, he's a, he's, yeah. he's, uh, he's his his uh, the rest of his family is ultimately going to benefit from his his sacrifice to lion kind. I mean, there are murals of this mountain lion all over Los Angeles. It is, you know, such a beloved story and a, and a beloved figure. And I didn't realize they actually are building that wildlife corridor. I knew there was plans to, but it, it's under construction now. It's under construction now. It'll be completed by uh, 2025. What, what is that uh, going to look like? Like, just paint a picture for us of of what that is. Yeah, it's it's a really a, it's a really amazing structure. It's you know almost almost calling it a bridge is I think kind of a misnomer because it's it's really going to be this I mean one planner described it as you know architecturally solid terrain through which the highway must pass it's basically this brand new ecosystem you know almost as wide as it is long um, that's going to have shrubs and chaparral and oak trees and all kinds of little habitat features on it because you know mountain lions yes they're sort of the symbol of the divisiveness of the 101 this giant freeway but you know they're also coyotes and deer and bobcats mm-hmm. and lizards and and birds and insects, right? There are all of these other species that are also suffering due to the, the division and the fragmentation created by the freeway. Uh, and, you know, the, the designers and the landscape architects who are building this thing have to think about all of those different animals, right? And create the habitat features that they all need, whether that's, you know, little log jams for rodents or rock piles for snakes or, you know, or, or, or oak woodlands for deer. Uh, you know, you have to think about the entire ecosystem. So it's really going to be this, this whole new chunk of land that's going to span the 101. It's incredibly exciting. And do we think that animals are actually going to be able to use this? Because I imagine, you know, th- these are not, these are not people, right? They're smart and they're adaptable, but are they going to realize Hey, if I want to cross this thing, I got to go a mile south because that's that's where the that's where the crossing is, you know? Yeah, I think I think so. You know, it's one of the one of the really important pieces of this whole construction. And this is true of any any wildlife crossing, you know, is, is you have these roadside fences that kind of lead the animals to the crossing. Right. So if you're a mountain lion and you're looking to, you know, you're looking to disperse into a new habitat, you're wandering along, you know, you reach the 101. And then you hit a fence and you, you know, you turn right and you follow the fence line looking for a way across. And then, oh, suddenly here's this amazing bridge that you can use, right? So the animals don't necessarily know to use the structure unless you've got the fences along the road that kind of direct them or funnel them to the crossing. Ah, I see. So we're sort of sort of inclining them. Hey, if you go this way, maybe there'll be some nice stuff down there and they can sort of follow the follow the path. Kind of like uh, wayfinding at an airport. Just go this way. We're just going to let you know if you go this way, you'll get to the right spot. Um, but look, that's one project I assume constructed at the cost of many millions of dollars because of uh, because of one celebrity mountain lion. Uh, is are projects like that really capable of addressing the scale of this problem? And by the way, this is just one of the problems with the roads. We haven't even gotten into the others. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, it's 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 an awesome question, Adam. I mean, I mean, I think that you know, look, certainly. 
we know that these projects are broadly good, right? But, you know, there, I mean, there have been, you know, several thousand of them built in the U.S. and, you know, and many thousands more in Europe and, and uh, other, other places. Uh, and, you know, we, okay. know that they, we, we know that they work in reducing roadkill, in many cases dramatically, you know, by more than 90%, um, and, you know, helping animals get to the places they need to get to, right? So, you know, we, we know that, you know, these wildlife crossings are good. They often actually pay for themselves by preventing uh, lots of dangerous crashes, right? You can imagine that when you know when you oh, hit a deer, you they're know, good you, for you, they're good for for like motorist safety as well. They're good for motorist safety, right? You know, ah. like when, you hit, when you when you hit a deer, you know that that messes your shit up, right? Of course, uh, you know, yes, you've got, you, you're right. You've got the you know you've got the hospital bills if you're injured. You've got the vehicle repairs, the insurance costs, the tow trucks. You know, the average deer collision costs more than nine thousand dollars, and all of these different expenses. So you know, if you can build these wildlife crossings with the fences that, you know, prevent those dangerous crashes, those dangerous and expensive crashes, you know, you can actually save a lot of money in the long run, right? So, you know, we know that these things are good. Um, but at the same time, you know, as you're alluding to, I think we can't build them everywhere, right? Um, you know, there's just, there's just so many thousands of, you know, of places out there where, uh, you know, where, where road kills an issue. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, wildlife crossings, they're better than not having them. Absolutely. They work. Um, but, you know, they, they don't uh, exactly cure all of the, the problems that, uh, you know, our, our obsessive car culture creates in this country. That's that's for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, before we get to what those actual solutions might be or those broader solutions, let's talk about more of the problems. I like problems more than solutions. Almost. They're more fun to talk about. Uh, <laughs> uh, what, what, uh, now, we've talked about animals that are crossing by land, getting hit by cars. What about birds? I mean, birds can fly right over. Do birds have problem with roads as well? Yeah, you know, I mean, birds, birds get hit all the time. Um, unfortunately, I, I Fuck, hit an owl man. a few weeks ago. Yeah, nothing. <laughs> you nothing hit an owl? Safe, dude. I hit an owl. Yeah, I was, I was pretty traumatized you wrote, by it. You wrote this book and you hit an owl. I, I hit an owl the week that the book came out. That was, that, that's, this, that's one of my great shames. Um, a yeah, wise, was, uh, a wise owl full of knowledge about what we could be doing better. And well, you he, he, killed it with your Chevy Tahoe or what was it? He, what, he wasn't, he wasn't that wise clearly, Adam, if he, you know, swooped in front of the, in front of my Subaru Crosstrek. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, a Subaru. All right. And you think you're all earthy, crunchy with the Subaru and here right. you are murdering owls. Okay. Yeah, well, I didn't. I didn't feel great about it. What? Well, now that I've, now that I've confessed my sins, what? What? What was the last animal that you hit, Adam? Yeah, you sure? I don't drive. You have something. I oh, you famously, I famously don't drive. No. Um, oh, although, I didn't know that about you. Okay. No, well, I don't you're, drive. You're a, better, I, you're a better man than me. But the bus I rode probably has has hit a lot of finches. I would imagine, and a couple yeah. pigeons. Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, I'm not I'm not blameless, right? And by the way, a lot of shit comes to me just because I don't drive doesn't mean like I'm not benefiting from roads. Like all my packages come on roads. You know what I mean? Like, right. like are, it's roads are, everywhere, man. You don't get to opt out of using roads. Yeah. Those are, those are blood packages, dude. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. We're all sinners here. We can all admit right. it. We're all, um, totally, yeah. and, and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll all go home and pray to the owls that we murdered every <laughs> single night. Uh, yeah. What kind of owl was it? Uh, I I don't I don't know I yeah I, I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't I couldn't find him um, I was uh, okay yeah, I was, it happened it all happened so fast you know how did he you was know here. it was an owl was it the was it like did you hear like a hoo -hoo, like right before the splat I I did not hear a, a doomed final hoot but you know it, it was just a I'm I'm sort of inferring it was it was a a, a very large bird flying at night 
Um, uh-huh. I, think, I, think it, I think it was probably an owl. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, you were asking you were asking about birds before I just I just took the opportunity yes. to confess my sins for, for no reason. <laughs> and I'm so glad um, that you did. Yeah, no, I, I, you're, you're sort of, you're sort of like a, a priest. You're, you know, you're taking my, my road. That's what people, this, that's what people come show. here to do, man. That's what the yeah. show's all about is this is where we're really honest. <laughs> and we confess what animals we were, we worded. So, but back onto birds. Right. Yeah. So, so, um, you know, so one of the big problems that roads cause that, you know, I think we don't really think about is, is road noise pollution, right? That's a, a really right. big one. You've got, you know, you've got the engine noise, you've got the tire noise, you know, actually most of what you're hearing when you hear, you know, an interstate kind of hissing along, that's actually mostly tire noise, um, not the mm. engine, right? So, so, so electric vehicles are not going to, you know, save us from all of that, that road noise. And right. you know, you, I mean, you think about, you know, you think about the owl that I, I, uh, unfortunately hit, you know, that, I mean, that's an, that's an animal with incredibly keen hearing, right. An animal that makes its living with its hearing, you know, has to listen mm. for the little creeping footsteps of a, a mouse or a vole in the underbrush. Right. And, you know, if you have, you know, this half mile wide strip of noise pollution created by the highway, I mean, that's functionally, a half mile of habitat loss, right? If the right. owl can't hear that mouse because the, the the sound is drowned out by engine and tire noise, you know, the owl can't live there, right? So again, you know, we return to this idea of the road as being this, you know, super narrow strip. And yet that kind of noise envelope can be, you know, a couple miles wide and it's affecting, you know, every critter within its, uh, its purview. Right. I mean, I think we've all had the experience of, going on a hike in a place where you're like, what a wonderful natural habitat. And you're, you know, enjoying getting out there in nature. Like everything is so fresh and, and peaceful. And then you, things get really quiet and you're like, I can hear the road. I can hear it. It's like, it's just over there. And maybe it's a mile away. You can still hear it. Um, and it, it, uh, you know, the sonic landscape is something that, that animals actually use to navigate. Right. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's really challenging. And there's, there's this great study, this experiment that I write about in the book called the, the Phantom Road. And, you know, basically what researchers did is they, they recorded the sound of traffic and then they played the sound of traffic through speakers in this roadless area. So there's no physical road, just right. Just the, just the, the noise pollution yeah. of the road. Uh, and they found that, you know, all of these birds avoided that area and the birds who stuck around actually were in, they were in worse shape. So the reason for that is that if, you know, if you're a little, like imagine being a little sparrow, you know, and you get eaten by everything, right? Hawks and falcons and foxes and bobcats and all kinds of other critters. And you're constantly just listening for, you know, the flap of a hawk's wings or the sound of that fox, you know, creeping through the brush, right? But again, if that if those acoustic signals are drowned out by all of that road noise, you have to look around for predators constantly instead of listening for them. And every second that you're looking around is a second that you're not eating uh, you know, berries or insects or whatever you eat, right? So the, the birds in this case, all of these little migratory songbirds that you know need to put on fat to complete these you know multi-thousand mile journeys, they they were in you know they basically lost weight and they were less fit to migrate. Because wow. you know, the, the noise of that road just masked their predators and they were sort of constantly vigilant as a result. That's really, I mean, it's a really cool finding. But can can I just, can we admit that like sometimes like scientists, their plans for studies are like kind of lazy and obvious, you know what I mean? Like we went and we played 
loud sound in the forest and the birds left. Like, oh yeah, I went to a library and I put on a Motorhead album on a boombox and everyone yelled at me. Like, it's a very obvious, it's like, yeah, of course they don't like, of course they don't like the sound, but I guess it, it sort of illuminates something that we don't, we don't often think about, which is, is that really powerful effect. Um, and I know that, uh, that amount of sound is, it's rare now to even find a place, uh, that it, it does not have human sound coming Somewhere, I forget the name of it. I read an article years ago about a um, uh, a, a a guy who who uh, does field recordings, and one of his goals is to go to different uh, places in the natural. Maybe you know his name. Uh, different places in the natural world where <laughs> there is no human sound, and just record the sounds there because these are like endangered soundscapes. Um, because almost anywhere that you go, you will eventually hear, if you don't hear a road, you'll eventually hear a plane or some other sort of human sound. And when you think about the number of uses that animals use it for finding each other, communicating with each other, listening for prey, listening for predators, um, you know, all those sorts of things, it's like it's we're taking away one of their senses. Yeah, no, no question. And yeah, I mean, I mean, silence is sort of this uh, scarce and endangered resource, right? And it's and you know, and it's not just wild animals. You know, it's it's us too. Uh, you mm. know, I think we're so we're so kind of awash in in road noise that we don't really notice it. You know, and and yet road noise is it's elevating our blood pressures, uh, our our stress levels. It's making us more susceptible to cardiac disease and stroke and diabetes and all of these other maladies. I mean, it's literally taking years off of our lives. There was there was this really uh, just heartbreaking, shocking study it's set in Paris where they basically, you know, researchers basically compared people living in the noisiest neighborhoods to people living in the, the quietest neighborhoods. And the people in the noisiest neighborhoods lived three years less than the people in the quiet neighborhood. So so noise alone, and most of that is road noise, is again, it's literally taking years off of our off of our lives. And you know, when I when I as I was writing this book, uh, my wife and I were we were living um, you know, in a pretty noisy neighborhood in eastern Washington. You know, we had we were in this kind of this busy arterial um next to uh next to I-90 uh, you know, we were in a pretty loud environment and I was sort of reading all of this noise pollution literature and it was like, holy shit. I mean, this, this is literally killing us. Uh, so we, we ended up, you know, we ended up moving and, and now we live on a, a little quiet street in the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, thanks in part, I think, to this, this realization that road noise was is, uh, yeah. is a, a killer of humans. And how do you get to that quiet street? A road, a road oh, on I which drive, you kill owls. I drive to it, Yeah. Yeah, Adam, uh, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so impressed that you're a non-driver, dude. I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm full of, I'm full of oh admiration. My. I didn't know that about you. No, 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 no. It's it's because I'm a coward and I have, <laughs> I have bad eyesight. I don't like doing it. And, you know, I mean, I take my fair share of Ubers, right? Because that's the, you know, I, I take public transportation as much as I can. I'm still using the system as much as anybody else. It's it's a choice that makes me more comfortable. It's not one that, you know, I, I can even urge upon other people, nor do I think it's sufficient to solve the problem. Um, but I want to talk more about how roads affect us as people, not just wildlife. But we got to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Ben Goldfarb. As a factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show. I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites 
on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address, all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe, but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you wanna safeguard yourself like that and live with a peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com Adam. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So we're back with Ben Goldfarb. We've been talking about how roads impact the environment so profoundly, way out of proportion to what you might think based on, you know, our sort of limited experience with them. Um, and, you know, there's a contrast there, what hurts the environment versus what helps humans. I want to talk more about the ways that roads hurt humans, though. We just talked about noise pollution, how that's bad for our health. What about regular pollution? I mean, I read a couple years ago, there was a study, and I'm not going to know the numbers, but there was a study that uh, living close to a freeway was very bad for your health and that, you know, the study sort of recommended homes should not be built this distance from freeways within, a, you know, however many feet or a quarter mile, something like that. And then the study went on to say that, in fact, most homes in Los Angeles are built that exact distance from a freeway or most yeah. people who live in Los Angeles. Um, so are living within the danger zone that this very study said you should not live within. So uh, and that's because of particulate, you know, I assume pollution, you know, it better than I like how bad is that problem? Yeah, it's, a, it's a, a, a huge public health crisis, no doubt about it. You know, I mean, certainly you see really high rates of asthma and heart disease and cancer, uh, you know, living in close proximity to the to, to major highways. I mean, and a, lo a lot of that is, you know, is certainly uh, is, is certainly due to those those particulate pollutions that you're talking about. You know, I think it's important to note as well that, you know, look, roads affect all of us in, in some way or another. You know, we, we again, we think about them as these, you know, these emblems of uh, of, of human freedom. Um, and yet, you know, try getting around, uh, you know, Dallas or Raleigh or, you know, LA without, without one, right? They're, you know, they're also impinging on our own lives in all kinds of ways. But, you know, they're not, they're not affecting us all equally. You know, I think that's a, another really important thing, too, is that, you know, when you look at rates of who lives close to freeways, you know, you see that it's disproportionately communities of color, you know, it's, it's right. African Americans and, and, uh, and Latinos and, and, uh, and, and Asians, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's generally sort of disadvantaged people who are sort of forced into these, these really uh, dangerous and unhealthy living situations. And that's, you know, very much a, 
a kind of a, a deliberate artifact of history. You know, it was, I mean, it was those urban freeways that were built through all of these American cities, you know, Miami, Minneapolis, Syracuse, um, basically as a way of, you know, wiping out these, these communities of color, these neighborhoods of color that, you know, white urban planners uh, considered slums, you know, so let's just take, you know, I-81 or, or uh, you know, I-5 or, you know, you name the freeway and we'll just plow it through, uh, you know, yes. one of these neighborhoods and, and wipe it out. So, that, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, the fact that communities of color are sort of disproportionately affected by roads today, um, I mean, that's very much, you know, the, the, the legacy of, of uh, you know, 70 years of kind of infrastructural racism. Yes. And for those communities, those roads do exactly the same thing to humans that we're doing to the natural world where they divide the habitat in half. I mean, I read a number of years ago when I lived in New York, um, The Power Broker, the famous uh, biography of Robert Moses by Robert Caro. One of the most incredible books you could read if you're if you like history and biography. Um, but it talks about how Moses drew, drove freeways right through existing neighborhoods. And so imagine if you lived in what was previously a walkable neighborhood, you know, you walk to work, you walk to the store, you, you've got your neighbors, et cetera. And suddenly there's a freeway going through your neighborhood that you either have to go under an underpass where it's all dark and scary, or you have to walk over an overpass, like a little pedestrian bridge. Suddenly you are cut off from your own neighborhood. You used to live uh, you know, in a, in a walkable sort of human environment. Now you live on the side of a wall full of, uh, uh, you know, uh, like you say, a moving fence going 80 miles an hour that is loud and noisy and polluting you and cuts you off from your neighbors that happened to millions and millions of Americans. Yeah, ab absolutely. You know, and, and I mean, one of the one of the places that I, I went working on this book was was Syracuse, where I-81 was the, the freeway that was just punched right through the, the middle of the city, again, in a very deliberate way, sort of targeting this, you know, this vibrant uh, African-American community that, you know, to the the city's planners looked like a looked like a slum because it you know was it had it had black people in it, um, and you know and, and there I mean what you know what happened you know there was sort of the initial displacement caused by the freeway but then there was you know decades afterwards of of this sort of slow motion um, decay of neighborhoods you know where people could not reach businesses, you know, grocery stores and dry cleaners and churches and each other, uh, you know, and, and, and so you've got the sort of the immediate trauma of the freeway being built. And then you've got, you know, decades and decades subsequently of, of uh, you know, this, this kind of slow motion deterioration. And, you know, now Syracuse is, you know, is one of the most segregated uh, cities in the country, um, you know, in large measure, because, you know, this, this, uh, this freeway just kind of plowed through the middle of it. But, you know, but there, they're actually in the, the very gradual process of removing that that viaduct wow. that big elevated section of freeway they're, they're in the kind of the planning process right now um, and that you know the long-term plan is to tear that down and replace it with this sort of street level boulevard uh, known as the community grid that's going to have houses and businesses and hopefully restore some of that vibrant urban life to this you know this impacted neighborhood so just because you know we made these infrastructural mistakes decades ago doesn't mean that we can't rectify some of those errors today I and mean, we just so rarely think about as i said at the beginning even though that roads connect us they also separate us that, you know, the bigger a road is, the more cars can move on it. Well, the more people it connects across long distances, but the more it separates someone standing on one corner from the opposite corner, right? That like, if you want to, if you want to cross a, 
uh, you know, a slow moving city street. Hey, you can probably step out into the street and just like, oh, your friends across there. Oh, hey, how's it going? Just step up, you know, look both ways and, and walk. But if you're trying to cross an eight lane road, uh, you are you might as well be looking across the Grand Canyon like you have to wait for your little prescribed moment of time, your 20 seconds that you get every five minutes that it's going to be safe for you to cross. If you're lucky, it'll be safe. Um, and the fact that we have subdivided our entire world you know, with these chasms, these trenches of cars, these walls of cars that make it harder for us to move around is just we almost never think about it. How did we get ourselves into this fix where, you know, 100 years ago, right, we hadn't, uh, that's not what roads were to us, you know, uh, now they are. How do we get ourselves into this situation? How do we make this infrastructural mistake? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a really good question. You know, I think that one of the, the ironic things about the history of cars and roads, right, is that, you know, we think of, of, of America as having this love affair with the automobile, right? That's a term that you hear uh, right. you know, thrown, thrown around all, all the time, right? As though, you know, we, we sort of, we, we love these things because they permit us, you know, freedom and mobility and, and so on. But, you know, when, when the car first proliferated on American landscapes, you know, we freaking hated them, right? And, and you know, this, this is something <laughs> that the, the, the historian Peter Norton has written about a lot, you know, the yep. fact that, you know, when, when cars first enter civic life, you know, there are these giant safety parades, you know, where all of these, you know, these children and mothers are out in the streets protesting against this dangerous new, you know, usurper that's, that's taking over, uh, you know, that's taking over urban, urban life. And, you know, I mean, and early cars were, you know, they were incredibly, I mean, they're still, of course, incredibly dangerous, but, you know, at the time, per capita pedestrian death rates were even higher. You know, nobody knew how to drive. There were no signs. There were no safety features. You know, these things were incredibly dangerous. So people hated the car, you know, the car and the car was also, you know, it was the tool of the, the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers, right? That was, you know, that was sort of who could afford right. uh, early, early cars, you know, it was, it was the sort of the, the hoi polloi. Who, it was, you know, the, it was the rich person's the murder machine. They would, exactly. it was a rich some, person's murder machine. Yeah, some, exactly. some rich guy fucking barreled through my working class neighborhood at 50 miles an hour and killed my son on his way to the child labor factory. And so, now, <laughs> Now we lost a source of income and our beautiful little boy. People were pissed about it. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and one of the, I mean, one of the fascinating things that, you know, I, I did in this book was just, you know, try to sort of read about the early history of, of roadkill as well. Right. And, and, you know, ah. one of the fascinating things is that like, you know, the early biologists, you know, who, who go out and, you know, in the 1920s to count dead woodpeckers and garter snakes and ground squirrels, you know, they're all thinking about roadkill in exactly those terms, you know, they're, they're like, Hey, cars are, they're destroying American cities. They're killing our, you know, our child on, on the way to the child labor factory. And they're also killing woodchucks and, you know, and head and porcupines and all kinds of other critters as well. So it's, it's, you know, the, this sort of concern about animals and nature emerges, I think, from this concern about cars impacts on humans. Um, and then what happens is basically that the car, the car wins, right? I mean, the car has really good lobbyists, you know, they're the car yeah. companies, they're the oil companies, they're the, the contractors who are building roads, you know, there's the, I mean, the, the federal government itself, you know, the Bureau of Public yep. Roads, uh, and, you know, and, and all of this, this sort of popular dissent, um, both about, you know, pedestrian deaths and about wild animal deaths, all kind of gets like swept under the rug by this, you know, incredibly powerful uh, automotive lobby. 
and we still have those lobbies today. I mean, if you look at, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is, you know, the one of the biggest infrastructure infrastructure uh, bills we've had in a uh, generation that's like going to create all these, you know, uh, uh, new green initiatives. Well, a big part of it is that, you know, the biggest investment in uh, uh, the, the green transition is for electric cars, right, which are going to drive on roads. Like we are not investing in you know, trains or other systems of transportation that can move more people more efficiently using less space with less destruction. We are doubling and tripling down on roads. We're just changing the engine that's in the vehicle. And I mean, are we perpetuating the same mistake? I, I think in a lot of ways, yeah. You know, I think I think that that often when we think about when you know, or when the general public thinks about you know the environmental impacts of transportation, they think about the carbon emissions, right? The, the contribution of cars to climate change, and that's certainly that's right. that's, a, that's, a, that's a big thing, right? That's I mean, transportation I think is something like a quarter of of our country's carbon footprint. So certainly, you know, cars are are a big contributor to climate change. Um, but you know, it's not as though you can just you know go from uh, an internal combustion engine to a battery, and suddenly our transportation infrastructure is ecologically benign, right? I mean, it, you know, those those electric vehicles are not going to do anything about you know the problems we've been discussing: the roadkill, the barriers to migration, the road noise problem, the road salt problem. Um, you know, road salt is turning all of our rivers and lakes into you know brackish estuaries. You've got oh, you know God. tire tire particles that are you know killing killing salmon in some cases, right? You've got this whole suite of ecological problems that cars cause and you know and and again as you i mean as you say you know changing from uh you know a, a conventional engine to a battery uh is not going to solve any of those problems right so i think that's a lot of what you know my book's about ultimately is is that look you know climate change is part of the ecological problem of transportation but you know it's it's by no means the only one and you know you, you can even imagine a world in which electrification makes some of those problems worse right once it's you know when it's when it's cheaper to drive because you're just plugging your car into the grid rather than filling up your your gas right. tank you know you, you drive more um right. and you know more driving means you know more of the, all of the problems we've been talking about so anyway yeah this episode is basically you know adam adam ruins your road trip um, because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so what What do we do about this? Because it, w when we talk about it on that scale, it seems like part of the problem here is is the problem of humanity, you know, that we have an impact no matter what we do. I mean, I remember reading years ago, I think we actually covered this on Adam Ruins Everything, that um, even the act of creating a path in a natural wilderness, just people walking from one place to another, um, you know, has some of the effects that you're talking about where it creates a wildlife dead zone. Animals don't want to go there because they can tell some large mammals have been walking around, you know, and that's just what humans, you know, uh, 10,000 years ago, that's what humans were doing was creating a path from one place to another. And once we had those paths, of course, we naturally wanted more efficient ways to go from one place to another. Bad roads were a curse in America before we had the, the interstate, you know, we had gravel roads everywhere. It was like one of the most important infrastructure projects to improving human life in this, in this country was reforming our roads, paving them, you know, like it, it improved people's lives. And I think about, you know, I have a, a, a very good friend of mine bought some land in Joshua tree out in the desert. He built a home out in the desert. The very first thing he had to do was build a road to the property so he could get there. He had to, he, he rented a bulldozer. He had a lot of fun building his own road. He probably knows more about roads than you do consider it. Well, or at least he has some hands-on experience because he built one himself. Right. So this is yeah. like, 
uh, to some degree, creating an efficient corridor for movement is just part of what humans do on this planet. So are we just cursed to always have this effect on the world around us? Or is there something that we can actually do about it? That's a, that's a good, a good and big question that I don't really have a great answer to. I mean, you know, I I think, I think that look, certainly, you know, giving people more transportation options is really important, right? Creating better transit systems that get people out of their cars, uh, you know, is, is, is really, really vital, you know, and that, and that applies in in sort of many different contexts, you know, you've got, I mean, certainly that's, you know, something you can, you can do in a city and many cities are, you know, engaged in that work of, you know, improving transportation options. Um, but you know, you, you, you could also imagine, uh, you know, doing that in a, a, a protected area like a national park, right? We've you know we have parks now like Denali National Park and Zion National Park and Glacier, you know, where where the the private vehicle, the personal car, you know, the symbol of the American road trip is basically forbidden, and you have mm. to you know get on uh, a bus like a like a damn European, and you know, and and uh, <laughs> experience experience the landscape that way. You know, I think I think that's that's an important point, right? Is that you know is that yes. You know, we as humans, we are we are this road building species. You know, we're an infrastructure species. But you know, it's not it's not always the road itself that's that's the really catastrophic thing. It's you know, it's it's the traffic that drives on the road, right? And if you can, yes. you know, if you can if you can reduce that traffic dramatically by consolidating people in a single bus rather than having them all strung out in their personal vehicles, right? That's, you know, that's, that's a, a huge, a huge improvement for nature in a lot of ways. And it gives you, it gives you options too, you know, like in, in Denali, where, you know, they, they have this, this wonderful bus system, uh, you know, they, they operate the bus system in such a way that there have to be gaps between the buses for animals to migrate, right? And that's something that you can't, mm. you can't really do that, you know, if you have 100,000 people in 100,000 personal vehicles, right? That's, that's, yes. you know, that's the kind of thing you can do when you have a mass transportation system. So, you know, getting people out of their cars, I think, is however you accomplish that is one of the most important things we can do for this planet. It makes me think again about Griffith Park and the city where I live, Los Angeles, one of the big tourist attractions here. There's an observatory at the top people like to go to. But you know how people get there is they drive. There's a road through the park all the way to the top. And every single time you go to this park, you know what there is? Traffic in the park. People bumper to bumper driving to the top so they can get out and walk around a little bit. And every couple of years, someone has a plan of let's build what they have in other cities. Let's have a gondola or a funicular or something that'll get people up to the top of this park. And a lot of the neighbors say, no, that's going to destroy the park. It's a wild, natural place. There is a road in the park. We we have a road in the park right now. What if yeah. we got rid of the road, turned that into a walking path or, or a natural habitat, and then had some sort of mass transportation up to the top? We would have a more vibrant, verdant park with more space for wildlife in it. So uh, along those lines, you know, if you could make some policy prescriptions for the next hundred years of transportation or roads in America... Right. Um, what what would you suggest uh, in terms of, you know, making sure that we aren't perpetuating these problems? Is there a is, you know, is there a better way to organize our transportation? What is it? Yeah, good. That's a that's another really good and big and difficult question. I mean, you know, and we're going to end on it. And so you better have a good oh, answer. Gosh. All right. Well, I'll, I'll do I'll do my best. I mean, I, you know, look, certainly there's no I mean, there's no silver bullet. Right. Um, yeah. You know, you think about 
okay, you know, a, a city like Los Angeles, I mean, certainly, you know, increasing public transit options is, is really important. Um, you know, getting people out of cars is vital. But, you know, then I think about where I live. I live in, I live in rural Colorado, uh, and it's sort of hard to imagine, yes, you know, okay, you could, you could, you could potentially imagine better bus service here. But, you know, it's, it's also really hard to, like, we just don't have a dense enough population for, you know, public transit uh, to really be widely adopted, I think. It's, it's just hard to imagine the transit system that is going to get people out of their cars, you know, here in the Arkansas Valley in rural Colorado, where there are, you know, 7,000 people and, you know, 100,000 square miles of land or something like that. Right. right. So, you know, and, and, and the challenge, I think, um, is that, you know, these rural areas tend to be where these sorts of ecological problems are concentrated, right? Here, this is where we have, you know, big herds of elk and antelope and deer. Uh, you know, we've, we've got mountain lions and black bears and so on, right? You know, the rural places are the places where the wildlife tends to live, um, you know, Santa Monica Mountains notwithstanding. Um, and, you know, they also tend to be the places that, you know, where, where I think the car has America in its strongest grip and where, you know, sort of automobility is like most intractable in some ways. Right. So, you know, I think I think that it's, it's these kinds of places, rural areas where, you know, it's hard to get people out of their cars and, you know, and, and there's lots of wildlife where, you know, we, we really need to be investing a lot, lot more um, in those those wildlife crossings, you know, which really do work, you know, giving yeah. animals opportunities to cross highways that are inevitably going to have traffic on them. You know, and I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, the Infrastructure Act earlier. I mean, that, you know, that Infrastructure Act had, you know, $350 million just for wildlife crossings, um, wow. you know, which, which is a good, a good pot of money. Of course, it also had 110 billion dollars for uh highways and bridges right so okay you know so we're investing more money in you know in, in these sorts of solutions for animals but you know we're not investing nearly enough right so that's you know that's that's something that i would i would certainly do as you know as transportations are in your hypothetical future is you know as, as i in urban areas you know i, I dramatically increase transit options and in rural areas you know, I tack another zero or two onto the funding that we're allocating to wildlife crossings and habitat connectivity and, you know, and, and yeah. give, just give animals more options. And how do you reckon with on a personal level, you know, you know all this about roads and you, you still need to use them to get around. So how do you, how do you reckon with, you know, when you're in your, your uh, Subaru Crosstrek, uh, <laughs> how, how, how do you feel when you start the car every morning, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, for, I mean, fortunately, I work, I work from home and I live in I live in a, a very walkable and bikeable little town. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm definitely able to minimize my driving. But, you know, I, I certainly do it. And uh, yeah, I, I feel like shit, Adam. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for asking. <laughs> I don't I don't I don't feel great about it. But, you know, I, I also I also feel like, look, I'm, you know, I, I mean, at risk of abdicating personal responsibility. You know, I, I live in this automotive society. Right. You know, we, we live in this country that's that's kind of oriented around the car. And, and you know, it's I don't I don't I don't I, you know, in, in the book, I really try hard to avoid blaming or shaming individual drivers for their decision to drive. Right. I mean, it's you know, it's sort of like, yeah. To me, it's sort of like climate change, right? It's like for you know, for a while, the climate movement was really focused on getting people to change their light bulbs, right? That was like the thing that was going to save us from climate change was changing changing their light bulbs. And then yeah. you know, people realized that oh, wait a second, you know, first 
that's just not nearly sufficient. Um, yeah. And second, you know, when, when you just kind of hector people about their light bulbs, you know, you, you tend to turn them off, right? The, the real solutions are, you know, holding fossil fuel companies accountable for their emissions and, you know, creating a, a decarbonized world, right? And I, I think yeah. that, you know, road ecology problems kind of pose the same dilemma. You know, the issue is not that, you know, we individual consumers choose to drive. It's that we live in a world that doesn't give us many other options besides driving. And, and that's really the answer is to, you know, create a world in which, you know, getting in the car every day is, is uh, you know, not the only rational option for a consumer. God, I want to live in that world. And thank you for uh, bringing us a vision of it. And uh, the book is incredible. Uh, it's called Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of the Planet. You can get it at our special bookshop at factuallypod.com slash books. And when you do, you'll be supporting not just this show, but your local bookstore. Um, ben, where can people uh, find your work other than that? Yeah, my my uh, personal website is is bengoldfarb.com and uh, I am I am perpetually on Twitter, so hit me up there too. <laughs> uh, ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been incredible. Thanks a lot, Adam, and thanks for not driving. I, again, I really admire that. I re I respect <laughs> you. <laughs> well, thanks for thanks for handling my good natured ribbing about the owl. We'll all grieve later. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Well, thank you once again to Ben for coming on the show. If you loved that conversation as much as I did, consider picking up a copy of his book at factuallypod.com slash books. And please consider supporting this show on Patreon. Five bucks a month gets you every episode of this show ad-free. For 15 bucks a month, I will read your name at the end of this podcast and at the end of my YouTube video monologues. Most recently, I want to thank Michael Frasco and Alex Sull. Thank you so much for your patronage. Head to patreon.com slash Adam Conover to join them and support this show and keep it free for everybody. I want to thank my producers, Sam Roudman and Tony Wilson, everybody here at HeadGum for making this show possible. Uh, you can find me online at Adam Conover. All my stand-up tickets and tour dates are available there too. And I'm at Adam Conover wherever you get your social media. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time on Factually. That was a HeadGum Podcast.